Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. History does have a way of repeating itself. Some 20 years ago, my guest, Judge Ken Starr, was a household name, just as is today Bob Mueller. As we will discuss, Starr's investigation into a falling real estate deal in Arkansas opened up new paths of deceit that led eventually to the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. In his recently published book, now number 12 on the New York Times bestsellers list, Contempt, a Memoir of the Clinton Investigation, Ken Starr takes us behind the curtain to describe how what he thought would be a relatively short assignment (laughs) became one that stretched over several years. As we wait to see what may come out of the Mueller report, the lessons we may learn two decades later are certainly worth our consideration. It's great to see you again. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So when discussing your upcoming visit with some of our staff and young interns, I was struck that some thought your appointment as an independent counsel was originally made to investigate President Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky, mm-hmm. the White House intern, rather than the examination of the activities surrounding Whitewater. Briefly, for the benefit of those who right. perhaps were, were not aware of <laughs> what brought you to Arkansas, explain what was the real genesis of the inquiry. The determination <clears throat> that uh, federal crimes may have been committed in connection with the financing of the Whitewater land deal. That land deal in Arkansas was a partnership uh, among uh, the two Clintons, Bill and Hillary, and the owners of a failed savings and loan. James and Susan McDougal. They were all friends, and when issues arose, both during the presidential campaign in 1992 and then thereafter, President Clinton actually directed his Attorney General, Janet Reno, to appoint a special counsel to investigate these matters. She did, uh, and she appointed a very able lawyer named Robert Fisk, who happens to be a friend of mine, and I hold him in the highest regard, a New York litigator, former United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Bob had been on the job, Bob Fisk, had been on the job for approximately six months when Congress reauthorized the independent counsel statute mm-hmm. that had been passed in the immediate wake of Watergate. So we have to go back in time and to focus on what Congress was trying to do in saying we do not want the Watergate fiasco, quite apart from the underlying crimes and the like, the impeachment uh, effort underway with President Nixon, but we don't want a special prosecutor or a special counsel to be fired by the president, which is what happened famously to Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor. Uh, at the direction of Richard Nixon, who was under investigation. Let's stop that. Let's put a stop to it. Well, the law was controversial to begin with. Historically, going back to the Grant administration, very briefly, the president or the attorney general had made the determination, through allegations here that might touch on the president or those close to the president, so let's appoint an outsider outside the Justice Department, preferably from the other political party, to come in and do the investigation. That was the genesis. So back to Whitewater. Congress reauthorizes this independent counsel provision on June 30, 1994. 
the thinking was by Attorney General Janet Reno, again, who had authorized Bob Fisk, is, well, now the appointment should remain with Bob Fisk, and so she petitioned under the statute a three-judge court to re essentially reappoint Bob Fisk. The three-judge court, under the statute, the appointing authority, very unusual, said, in effect, no, because Bob Fisk was part of the Justice Department appointed by Attorney General Reno, we're going to appoint someone else. So then they reached outside. And they reached outside. So I did not apply for the job. I didn't particularly want the job. It's not something you needed for your CV. <laughs> well, if I needed it, I would have let it go anyway. So we'll, we'll come back more, obviously, about your book. But what is the difference, say, in reporting responsibility and who works for whom exactly. now between the independent counsel and the special counsel that is Bob Mueller. This is pivotally important and somewhat confusing. The independent counsel was appointed by the three-judge court at the request of the attorney general, but she did not get to do the appointing. She didn't get to do the choosing. The special counsel is appointed by the attorney general of the United States. So or the who could have fired you if someone wanted to fire you at the point? I could have been fired under the statute by the Attorney General for, quote, good cause, uh, which does have a certain meaning in law. In other words, it can't be, I just don't like what he's doing or he's pushing too hard. It's got to be some real malfeasance, some true wrongdoing to fire an independent counsel who's, again, been appointed by the three-judge court. Moreover, here's another odd thing about the statute. If fired, the independent counsel can go into district court in Washington, D.C. and say, give me my job back. And the district court has the power to override the attorney general. So all things being equal today, what do you feel about the process I think, and the structure? I think the structure is now sound. That we should not have parted from the traditions of the attorney general, that's the direction of the president or otherwise, in the exercise of her discretion, saying, I'm going to go to Archibald Cox, Watergate. <laughs> I'm going to go to Bob Mueller, the current situation, which is exactly what the regulations call for that replaced the independent counsel law. The independent counsel law was upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States. But in my judgment, the Supreme Court was wrong in that. But at a minimum, in my judgment, it represented very bad policy. Well, let's get back to your book. The title of it is Contempt. That's a strong word. Uh, because the President of the United States was held in contempt. Uh, Bill Clinton is the only president in the history of the Republic to have been held in contempt by a federal district court for his crimes in connection with testimony in the Paula Corbin Jones sexual harassment civil rights case. And then, uh, as I recite in the book, in terms of the course of conduct throughout the investigation, I felt that both the President and Hillary uh, showed contempt for the rule of law more generally. Why wasn't Hillary Clinton indicted? As I describe in the book, we carefully reviewed the possibility of presenting an indictment to the grand jury in Little Rock because we felt she had committed crimes in Little Rock. Uh, we felt that she had committed perjury. Uh, but to feel that isn't to justify an indictment. We had a very elaborate process with professional prosecutors from the Justice Department reviewing the draft indictment, which was a comprehensive indictment. 
We had a very elaborate and detailed prosecution memo supporting that indictment. At the end of the conversation and the deliberative process, we determined we did not have the evidence that was admissible in court to prove each of the elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the ethical responsibility of the prosecutor. Several people who you did investigate ended up going to jail. How many? Yes, we had 14 criminal convictions and uh, all resulted in some form of either incarceration or in the case of Governor Jim Guy Tucker of Arkansas succeeded Bill Clinton uh, the governorship. Uh, it was house arrest because of a medical condition. Why did you wait so long to, to publish your side of the story? Both personal circumstances and, uh, and personal choice. Uh, I've been busy. Uh, I was busy as a, as a lawyer immediately uh, after mm -hmm. the investigation. I moved more fully into the academy. I've always had a foot in the legal academy. Uh, I became dean of the Pepperdine University Law School. Uh, I became president of Baylor University and chancellor. And so it's only when, sadly for me, I was let go as president and then I resigned as chancellor of Baylor that the opportunity you got some writing time. time got some writing time and then the culmination was Hillary lost the election yeah. and when she lost the election I said it really is now or never so I completed my book on Baylor in a sense less political to do it after and, and less political exactly let me ask you this as I read your book I was struck about how there really were it seemed a number of opportunities where if President Clinton or Miss Lewinsky had told the truth from the outset that their lives and the conclusion would have been very different. Why do you think President Clinton refused to settle with Paula Jones? And as a follow-on, did Monica Lewinsky receive, in the beginning, just poor legal advice? It is a mystery as to why the president didn't accept the losses. There are times when you say, I don't think the litigation has merit, but when the Supreme Court of the United States rule unanimously that you must, Mr. President, respond to the lawsuit. You can't get a time out during your presidency. That was the time to settle. He was very stubborn about it uh, and it, it chose not to. And then I think that the pivotal moment came when the revelations came about the relationship with Monica Lewinsky. After the fact, after he had committed perjury in the civil deposition, Dick Morris, and I count this in the book, uh, the president's from time to time political advisor, a brilliant guy, did an overnight poll. Who had his that, own issues. Yeah, he had his own issues, exactly <laughs> right. And in that overnight poll, the poll showed that the American people were very forgiving people. They would forgive adultery and extramarital affair. They would not condone perjury. Mm -hmm. The president knew he had to know. He had crossed the line and committed perjury. And so he said, according to the uncontradicted testimony of Dick Morris, his political advisor, well, we just have to win then. So it was now victory. I have to defeat anyone who comes after me. And what about Monica Lewinsky's legal team? Monica chose, against her mother's advice, <laughs> not to cooperate with the investigation. And then, in short order, her father brought in a criminal defense lawyer who was not a criminal defense lawyer named Bill Ginsburg, who's deceased. But I'm partially critical of the book of Bill because he could have had an immunity deal to protect his client within a matter of days. And he chose to become quite a man about town. He set, what I understand from my friends in the media, 
is a record that will never be matched again because appearing on all the TV shows. He appeared live <laughs> right. on five Sunday morning television shows, which, unless technology changes, is a Olympic record that will never be matched. And so he became very difficult to deal with. Uh, he was obstreperous. He could have had an immunity deal. We simply said, we have to know whether she's telling the truth. So we have to be able to interview her. He absolutely refused to permit that. Finally, after Monica's life became so miserable, uh, and I recount the dramatic uh, episode in Los Angeles where she clearly, in June of 1998, so we were months, we months into the investigation, is clearly under great distress. Only shortly after that did they fire Bill Ginsburg. She brought in two very experienced criminal defense lawyers, both of whom I knew, and we had an immunity deal within short order. One thing that I, I learned in the book that I'd, I'd forgotten if I'd ever known it was that when the so-called Star Report came out, and it was very graphic, and you know there was criticism about that. Yes. But the report was not supposed to be public. Exactly. We were stunned and dismayed, to put it mildly, when Congress decided, for the first time in its history, to simply reveal a confidential document without reviewing it. Who made that decision? Was that the United States House of Representatives? They voted by an overwhelming vote. Okay. There were a lot of no votes, but it was an overwhelming majority, simply to release the report unseen, unreviewed, even though my letter of transmittal said there is sensitive confidential information in here. I dealt with Congress in two tours of duty in the Justice Department. I was very familiar as a Washington hand with the way Washington, with the way the House and the Senate deal with confidential information. They don't just put it onto the internet, but they did. We have time just for one or two more questions, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what's happening right now in Washington, because Brett Kavanaugh, who's now a nominee for the Supreme Court, figures quite prominently in your book. What are your thoughts about him and what's happening? Well, I have the greatest confidence in Brett. Uh, he is almost a son to me. I recruited him early on to work in the investigation. We work side by side. Uh, his character then as now until about 15 days or 16 days ago, was viewed as beyond reproach. His public record is there for everyone to see, and I don't want to get into a political debate, but the very fact that he was subject to six full FBI investigations suggests, along with his public record, that he is a person of integrity. And so while I was out of the country during the actual testimony, I've only seen excerpts, when I saw the excerpt, when he used very strong language yeah. to deny and also to condemn, he denied the allegation. It did not happen, not an episode, but he did not participate in any such episode. And he described in very graphic terms the process as a disgrace. I'm very much a process person, and I think it is a travesty that Senator Dianne Feinstein sat on this information literally for two months and kept it for very unforgivable reasons in terms of fairness to the Senate, fairness to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is now hearing cases. If there were an issue, she should have brought it forth. She sat on it, and I think that is 
frankly, an unpardonable sin for a United States senator. And I'm using very strong language. So having said I hope, that, though, I hope and pray that you know, the process is running with the FBI investigation. I have no idea as to when it will conclude, but I hope and pray that for the sake of the country, that we move forward and not allow what I fear is character assassination at the 11th hour. Are you concerned in any way that he may have committed perjury? No, absolutely not. Last question. Do you believe that a sitting president can be indicted, and has your position on this issue changed over the years? Yes, in my judgment, a president can be indicted. I think it's obviously the ultimate kind of serious question for a prosecutor, and my views have not changed. I want to thank you very much, Judge Starr, for being our guest on Global IQ Minute, and I want to really encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Contempt. As you can tell, I learned a lot from the book, and I know you will too. Thanks for listening, and please tell your friends to listen to Global IQ Minute. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.